So, you may have had an experience in your life where you really wanted to do something good, right? Maybe that's you wanted to wake up earlier because you read a blog somewhere like the value of getting up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. Not because you have to because of work, but just like because you want to spend more time in the Word. Or you, or you do want to spend more time reading God's Word or, uh, you know, you want to stop looking at your phone so much. And you're like, these are good things. These are good habits. These are good endeavors. But then you find that there's another desire that you have that is kind of interrupting that. You're like, I really want to wake up early. I think that it would set uh, my, my rhythm for the day well. It would clear my, my mind, all that kind of stuff. But I just really like sleeping in my bed as long as possible. Right? Or you're like, I would like to stop looking at my phone so much, but there's always one more reel. You can always scroll a little bit more, right? As I got older, here as I'm getting older, I, just, I realized, you know, I really want to, like, put more effort into being fit, you know, and just being strong and being, uh, being able to do things that I want to do as I get older, and that's a good and noble thing. Uh, but one of the things that has been a challenge for me is that every fall, little Debbie comes out with fall party cakes. <laughs> now, I should tell you that little Debbie um, produces an inferior cake year-round. It is their zebra cake. Uh, and it is white cake with white icing. It's disgusting. It might, you know, it might even be yellow cake, right? And they think that that is so good that they do, on holidays, they do that too. For Easter, for spring, for Christmas, they have Christmas tree. It's all the same cake. But once a year, they do it right. And they have yellow cake with chocolate icing, inside and out. Yes, bless the Lord. It is good. And Tim knows that I buy these in bulk. My mother-in-law bought me eight boxes for Christmas one year. Um, And so I gave myself a special dispensation to enjoy fall party cakes. But you know what? As I'm trying to get fit, I realize it's hard not to eat these things. Sorry, I actually had one before church. And so, but I'm going to share... So would you like one here, Isaiah? There you go, buddy. There you go. I'm keeping the rest for myself. But no, sometimes you do find that there is something you want to do that's good. It's a good endeavor. But there's a contrary desire in you that oftentimes isn't as good. And it's easier to give into that. It's easier to sleep in. It's easier to quit your diet. It's easier, you know, to, 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 to keep scrolling or to watch TV or to be lazy. It's easier to give into those things, Right? We're going to meet a man today as we read, as we continue and really complete our series uh, on making disciples, uh, going through the first part of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to meet a man, a, a young man, a rich man, who is desiring a good thing. He's asking Jesus about eternal life. And yet, as much as he desires that thing, there's something else that he desires even more that's going to keep him from the kingdom. It presents Jesus' disciples and us with a, a learning opportunity and it's something they can, we can examine with our own heart. So I, if you uh, have your Bibles, if you would turn to the Gospel of Mark, we'll be in chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 17. We're going to read through verses to, to verse 34 today. And so uh, would you read the Word of God with me? And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at this, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to him, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this story, which you have uh, maintained, which you have secured for us in your written word. Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Lord, open up our hearts Lord, to, uh, to receive the truth that you have for us. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction where we need to have it, would bring uh, a sense of your loving, forgiving presence where we need to feel it. God, would you unite us in this truth? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So an interesting story. It's an important one, too. It's one that is included in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it is a story that uh, is told many times, and we get little details about it that are kind of from each one. So we have a man who runs up to Jesus as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He knows that he is going to his, it's his final journey to Jerusalem. There he will be uh, eventually betrayed and uh, mocked and beaten, put on trial, put to death. He knows that that is where he's going. But on the way, there's a man 
There's a man that runs up to him, you know, uh, kneels before him and asks him this, this really important question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This man's a little different than a lot of the people that Jesus has met. Um, we, we know a few things about him just from this story. Well, we, we do know, first of all, that he is a ruler. Now, we don't get that from Mark. We actually get that from Luke's account, that this is a rich young ruler. So he was a man with some level of authority, probably not a religious leader, but somebody who was ruling among his people in some governmental authority. <clears throat> Secondly, we learn that he's wealthy. That's why he's the rich man, right? Unlike many people that Jesus encountered, we, we've read plenty of stories where Jesus encountered those who were poor, who were needy, who were sick, who were disabled, or even some who were just really in a, in a moral place in their life, really outcasts. This is a man of wealth and good standing. Thirdly, he's young. We learn that from Matthew 19. That's actually, you know, where we get this idea of it, the rich young ruler is from Matthew's gospel reveals that. So he is a ruler He's wealthy, he's in his early manhood, he's already done well for himself early in life. So that would probably in the minds of most people, even today, indicate God's blessing or success. We learn that he's Jewish. We learn that from, if nothing else, uh, that he asks a question and he frames it in a way that was common to the Jewish people at the time. What must I do to inherit eternal life? His question is phrased in, in language that was common among the Jews of the day. Uh, but not only that, when Jesus responds to him eventually, he says, you know the commands, referring to the Ten Commandments, the second table of Ten Commandments. And so Jesus assumes and knows this is a young man who is Jewish. The man is, is going to eventually say, hey, I've kept those since I was young. So he's not like a, a recruit to Judaism. He is a Jewish person. He's also moral, right? He's interested in eternal life. He claims to have walked in obedience uh, to the commands of God. Uh, he, this is a man who, you know, who, who, you know when, Jesus, when he says that, I, I've kept all these commands since my youth, Jesus doesn't dispute it. There are certain times when someone's trying to like, sure, yeah, yeah I, I, I did that. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And he's, but Jesus doesn't call him out. So this man, at least externally, uh, was a moral person. So he's using his wealth, his youth, his power, his authority. He's using these things not for debauchery, not for wild living. He's probably a pretty conservative-minded person. He's trying to be a good person. This is a man who has everything in a worldly sense, wealth, power, authority, youth, a good reputation of integrity. This is the kind of person that synagogues would be like, yes, please come join our synagogue. You will bring a reputation to us. The disciples are probably like, this is great. This person is going to bring a, a sense of class. You know, he will elevate our position in the eyes of the religious leaders. You know, he, he, he would love this person to be one of the disciples along with them. Uh, any father and mother, you'd probably love for this to be your son, right? You'd be proud of him, like, oh, yeah, he's made his fortune, and he's, you know, he's, he's already got a really good job. He's, in a, he's, a, he's, he's not even an assistant manager. He's like a, a lead manager, you know. Ladies? He'd probably be quite a, quite a catch unless he's exceedingly ugly. Okay, this is the kind of guy, like, there might be ladies lining up around the block saying, you would be a good person to marry because of his station in life and where he's at. And yet, one other thing we know is that his soul is troubled. Do you notice how he approached Jesus? He ran up to him and he knelt before Jesus. 
Probably not a man who does that to very many people if he generally is a wealthy ruler of good repute. And he asks Jesus this question, but the fact that he's pursuing this man lets us know, hey, this question is, is urgent on his mind. And the fact that he ran and knelt, he is honoring Jesus, he even calls him good teacher, we'll talk about that in a minute, means that like there is a burning question in his heart and he believes this man might have the answer, that Jesus of Nazareth might have the answer. His soul is troubled. And I think that's an interesting point to make. Because, like I said, this man, in some sense, has everything. How many people wouldn't want to be in a situation like that? How many people are seeking that very thing? They would love to be young and wealthy and successful and powerful. And, and, and so many people think, man, if I just had that stuff, man, I'd be set. Then I'd be happy. Then I wouldn't feel anxiety all the time. Then I wouldn't be worried. The whole world seems to be chasing after what this man has. And there's a hope that if I just attain it, then I'll be set. And I think it's, it's interesting. This is a man who has it early in life, and there's a part of him that says, something's missing. Something's missing. And so he runs to Jesus. And he calls him good teacher and says, will you please tell me this answer? It's interesting, when, when this man asks this question, his main question is about eternal life, but he, he addresses Jesus as good teacher, and Jesus kind of like doesn't let that like, just go away. He's like, hey, hold on a second. What do you mean by that? You, you called me good teacher. You know, you know only, only God is good, right? So, so why are you calling me good? Now, there are some who have interpreted this verse and, and twisted it to mean something it doesn't. Is Jesus admitting here that he's a sinner? Like, only God's perfect. I'm not perfect. Why are you asking me? Is he admitting that Jesus is somehow, in, is Jesus saying, hey, I'm imperfect just like you? That, I, that he is somehow less good than the Father? Well, no. If that were true, then many key doctrines of Christianity would be false. And a variety, a great many other passages of Scripture would have to be radically reinterpreted. But the main thing is, is if Jesus was in any way imperfect or sinful, then his death on the cross would not be sufficient to cover anyone's sins. There's actually a plethora of passages that point out the fact that Jesus is indeed sinless and perfect and good. Hebrews 7, 23-28 talks about how Jesus did not need to sacrifice for his own sins like every other high priest did. So he could give his life for us. He is the perfect high priest. Also, he is the spotless lamb of God. In the Old Testament, lambs that were offered for sacrifice could not be like hobbled or have a skin disease or an ear missing or anything like that. They had to be perfect, unblemished. Jesus was perfect. The virgin birth recorded in Matthew and Luke's Gospels point to the fact that, that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He was not born of man because if that was the case, he would have been a son of Adam and inherited Adam's sin and guilt just like you and I do. But he did not. Uh, Jesus uh, says, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10. He shares the same nature as the Father. As the Father is good, so is Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says that he has perfectly fulfilled obedience to God the Father. But I'll just read 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, 
For our sake, he, that's God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is good. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is sinless. So we know that, and there's many other texts we point to to say that, right? Jesus, in John, he calls himself the good shepherd, right? So what is he doing here? Why is Jesus saying, why, why do you call me good? Well, it seems as though Jesus is, is taking on a certain posture when he's inter, inter, interacting with this man. He, he, he meets him where he's at and says, I'm going to go ahead and like, assume your point of view for the sake of argument. I'm going to speak to you from what you believe, and I'm going to ask some interesting questions, right? Not that he's agreeing with the man, because the man clearly has a few things wrong. But when he's saying, why do you call me good? He's saying, what do you mean by that? Only God is good. Are, are you, are you, do you understand who I am? Remember, we just, just in the past few weeks, as Jesus as, uh, is getting towards the end of his, his ministry before he goes to the cross, he is more concerned about what his disciples think of him what do the crowd, who do the crowd say that I am? Then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And so he's asking this man, who do you say that I am? Am I simply a good teacher or am I something more? So he kind of like challenges him on that, but then he gets to his main question, right? He says, in verse 19, you know the commandments. And he quotes basically the second table of the law of, from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. You know, do not murder, commit adultery, do not steal, bear false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother. And Jesus is really kind of addressing the man's main question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he does it on the man's terms. The young man is assuming that there's something he has to do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What good work do I have to do to please God enough that he will let me into heaven? Jesus is not... That's obviously not the right question. But Jesus says, okay, well, let's measure it against your standard. Let's measure it against what you're talking about. Let's let's talk about the law. How are you doing with that? And that's actually one of the uses of the law. That's one use for the law today. We don't just take the Old Testament and throw it out and say this is unimportant because it's the Word of God. And one of the things the law of God does is it serves as a mirror to say, this is God's standard of righteousness. You know, this man calls Jesus a good teacher. We, we use that phrase a lot, right? Like, oh, yeah, my neighbor, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, this kid, he's a good kid. We, we, we kind of use that. It's like, well, what, what do you mean by that? We certainly don't mean perfect, right? We just generally, like, it's, we just mean like, oh, yeah, they're, they're generally a pretty good person. They generally are nice and kind and civil and they, you know, yeah, generally speaking. And who are we comparing that to, though? Maybe your other neighbor. <laughs> Maybe somebody else's kid. Um, maybe just the general populace, right? Like, they're definitely in the 70 percentile of goodness. Like, that's, but the Word of God says, okay, do you think you're a good person compared to God? How do you measure up against God's Word? So Jesus is going up against and saying, hey, let's take a look at the law. What does it say? And this man says, I, I, I've, I've kept all these commands from my youth. And the answer is probably honest as far as this man believes. As far as he, he's aware, like, yeah, I've, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't stolen. I haven't done all these things. And externally, he may be right. A lot of Jews at this time were really wrestling with that. Externally, I'm living in conformity to these things. 
Of course, if you remember, Jesus gave an entire sermon on a mount saying, hey, if you look at a woman lustfully, with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you're coveting what your neighbor has, you're stealing from them. Right? If you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Maybe this man didn't hear that sermon. The law cuts deeper than just our external uh, activities, but also the, the, where our heart is. So this man, he says, yeah, I've done all this, Jesus. What else should God? There has to be something else. And I love Jesus' response. It says he looked at him, and he loved him. Jesus loved the man enough to tell him the truth. Jesus knew this man before the foundation of the world. He knew who he was and everything about him. He knew how the man would take this news also because Jesus knows all things. But he loved him enough to tell him the truth, a truth that he knew wouldn't be received well by him. Many in our generation think it's the opposite, that it's noble and loving to lie to someone rather than confront them with a difficult truth. Jesus did not do that. He challenged him, and his challenge was a genuine call that would have resulted in this man's salvation. Because he said he wanted a good thing, right? He wanted eternal life. But the call that Jesus puts on his life is specific to this man and reveals what was holding him back. The call is really nothing unique. It's, it's the same call it is to everybody. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Repent and believe. It's the same from Jesus' time until now. Repent and believe. To repent means to turn away from sin. You are running in a certain direction. You're running towards your sin. And then to repent is to literally turn away from it, to stop doing it, to, to, to cast it away, to reject it, to abandon it. And then he says, instead, follow after him. Follow Jesus. To believe that he is not more than just a good teacher. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the one with the Father. That he is the only Savior. That is how everyone enters the kingdom of God. Repentance and faith. So he tells this man specifically, though, he says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. That's the repentance part of it. And then come follow me. He tells him to sell all he has for this man. His riches, his possessions were the things that had a hold on his life. Those were the hindrance that was keeping him from coming to Christ. He says, those things, you need to get rid of them. That's not for everyone. It's not as though everyone who comes to Christ has to sell all they have. But for this man, he did. And he says, give it to the poor. Give the profits. When you sell it, you're going to get all this profit. He says, what are you going to do with that? And I think Jesus, when he says give it to the poor, yes, that's important. That's a good thing. But the reason for that, I think he's trying to give a man a clean cut. He says, hey, don't put it in, you know, in a bank account somewhere. Don't put it in a box and bury it in your backyard. Don't even give it to family members who you could go back later on in a few years when you've given up on Jesus and ask for that money back. Right? Don't give it to your friends who can owe you favors. Don't give it to people who would be business associates so later on down the line you can ask favors. None of that. Give it to the poor so you'll never get it back. Make a complete break with this thing that is keeping you from coming to the Lord. It says, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And that's something that you could easily just re, you know, blow past and say like, oh, that's just a nice thing. Like, No, he's saying, yes, I'm asking you to give up all of your riches. 
you're going to get treasure of a different kind that is much sweeter and will last forever. You will have treasure in heaven. More on that later. And finally, he says, follow me. This is the call of being a disciple. He's saying, hey, don't just accept my advice and teachings. Don't just put it, you know, don't just like put it on a nice, you know, doily that you sew and put on a, like a, your, your, your table somewhere in your house. You know, don't just, you know, put it on your Instagram. Like, like, no, follow me. Don't just accept my teachings as good advice. Accept me as master in place of your sin. Quit obeying that thing and start obeying me. Follow me in faith and obedience, and I will give you the eternal life that your soul is thirsting for, that your soul is nagging you for, that all your riches and your youth and your success and all of that is not giving you. I will give it to you. Believe in me. The call to repent and believe is universal. That's how everyone and anyone who enters the kingdom will enter. There's no plan B. There's no other way it's repent and believe the good news. But it can look different for all of us. I think oftentimes, true conversion involves the rejection on the front end of a specific sin. Like, generally, we're called to repent, like, turn away from our sins in general. I, God, I need a Savior. Forgive me of all my sins. But oftentimes, I'm not going to say always, but there is a specific sin, a controlling sin that is like shaping someone's identity in their whole life. And, and Jesus calls us, God's Holy Spirit calls us, you need to lay this thing down specifically. For the rich young man, it was his wealth. I'm sure he, this wasn't his only sin, but this was the one thing that was keeping him away. This is the one thing he wasn't willing to part with. This was the thing that was keeping him out of the kingdom of heaven. You guys remember Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector in Luke 19, we hear about his story. His was a similar story, right? And Jesus said, hey, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And he went there, and Jesus talked to him and, and, and changed his life. And by the way, Zacchaeus did the very thing this rich man didn't do. He did it voluntarily. He said, I've cheated people. I've cheated the poor, and I've stolen from them, and I'm going to give back four times as much as I owe to them. He did this without Jesus even asking him to. Because that was the overriding sin in his life. You guys remember in John chapter 4, there's the woman at the well, right? Jesus has this long conversation with her and, and everything. And then, G, and then Jesus says, hey, you know, before we, we go any further, you're living with a man right now who's not your husband, having an adulterous relationship with a man right now. And the past five men you've been with have not been your husband either. You need to turn away from that. Because that was the controlling sin in her life. It's often true today. Sometimes there's an obvious sin that is shaping someone's identity, shaping their pattern of life. It's got a hold in their heart more than anything else. And there's that one sin that stands in the way of something, repenting and believing and following Christ and having salvation. And sometimes people can be so close to the kingdom and this one thing, God says you need to turn away from that specifically. For some, that means they're going to have to move out of their boyfriend or girlfriend's house and stop committing fornication. For some people, that means they're going to have to turn away from an LGBTQ lifestyle. For some people, that means they're going to have to put away alcohol or stop gambling or stop playing video games or quitting social media or turning away from violent anger. It's different for all of us, right? You all have certain sins. I have certain sins. You know, everyone, we, we've had things that we struggle with that is not the same. 
There's different strongholds. I'm not even sure this necessarily always happens, right? But there are, there are clear indications in Scripture, and I've seen it in the lives of other people, where it's like, there's this one thing that you need to turn away from specifically. Like today, if you'd enter the kingdom of heaven. The good thing is, though, God's not saying, hey, you have to conquer this, and then I'll let you in. No, God's Holy Spirit says, I will come and set you free of this. You do not have the power to do it on yourself, or else you wouldn't need a Savior. But when Jesus identifies that, when the Holy Spirit of God brings that conviction, when Jesus points out to this man, this is the thing, will you listen? Will you then repent with God's power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he calls you out of the grave, will you come out or stay there? And so for some of you, if you're not there yet, this will be necessary for you. And maybe you've even wrestled with this. You want this good thing. You're like, hey, eternal life sounds good. Forgiveness sounds good. I think pursuing God would be good, but I, I also love doing this other thing over here. He says, will you turn away from that? It's killing you. It, it's keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven. Repent and believe. And that's exactly what this man did. He, he or didn't do, he was disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. This man went away because the cost for him was too great. He trusted in wealth that he could see with his eyes and touch with his hands over the promise of riches in the age to come. That kind that we hold now by faith. He, so he went away. He went away from Jesus, young, healthy, wealthy, rich, and condemned and going to hell. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so it's truly sad that there are many who are not far from the kingdom, but will never enter because they will not repent and believe. And so this serves as a teaching moment for Jesus, his disciples, and for us. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, his disciples are amazed at this, like, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, he has to repeat it again. Okay, children, how difficult, impossible it will be for those who have wealth. And he, and he gives this kind of very, very, you know, like, eye-opening. You know, now it's, it's just part of our, like, cultural language. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. If you don't know what an eye of a needle is, I mean, it's a needle. And that little tiny piece of, you know, the hole where the thread goes through, right? Which, by the way, it is nearly impossible to get thread through the eye of a needle. I was in middle school, and we had, and I had to, you know, learn how, okay, and we're going to learn how to cook, we're going to learn how to sew, and I'm like, all right, and I just like got all, it was like a Looney Tunes coming, I could not get it in there, and Jesus is saying like a camel going through the eye of a needle, like a big, hairy camel. It's of course meant to be absurd, it's meant to be, well, it's impossible. There's absolutely no way, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be absurd. So Jesus is shocking them. He's correcting their assumptions about what kind of person enters the kingdom of God, what person qualifies. They're like, Jesus, we've met some rough people on the road, you may have noticed, right? Not upstanding people. You know, the, the kind of people where, you know, let, let's be honest, if they walked in the church doors, you'd be like, this person has a lot of baggage. Jesus, this is not that guy. This, this guy, is, he's got all the stuff that you want, Jesus. Why? He, he, this guy's far from the kingdom. If this person is not going to make it in, then who can? 
you know, it, we, it's interesting because they're looking at this man's wealth and they're saying, surely this man is blessed by God. And by, they're not necessarily wrong to think about that. I mean, the Old Testament, especially under the Old Covenant, has, says, yeah, wealth is in some sense a sign of God's blessing, right? If you go to the book of Proverbs, we hear in chapter 10 that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hands of the diligent makes rich. That the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. In chapter 13, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. There are plenty of scriptures that say like, hey, wealth isn't everything, but wisdom, wise living, hard work, diligence, saving, investing, like those things will lead to more wealth. The disciples knew this, and so they were surprised at such a statement from Jesus. But there's a challenge that riches present to, to true repentance. I should say that it, it is not a sin to have money. It's not a sin even to have a lot of money. I, on, on the flip side, it's, it, neither is it virtuous to be poor. Okay? It's, it's not a, a specifically a virtuous thing, especially when poverty has come about as a result of sin. It's, it's not having money that's a sin. It's when money has you. Remember, it's 1 Timothy 6 that says, the love of money, not the possession of it. It's the love of money that leads to all kinds of sin, that is the root of all kinds of sins. By the way, and you can love money if you have it, and you can love money if you don't, but really, really, really want it, and you're giving your life to having it, right? So there are those who are fabulously wealthy, right? They, they have millions of dollars. They're comfortable. They, they don't have no care for anything. They love their money. And there are those who are dirt poor but love money so much that that's what they're pursuing. And it's the root of all kinds of evil in different ways. So most people really can't handle great power or great amounts of money. It's, it's simply too much temptation. It's not a sin to have money, but for a lot of people, it's, it's a challenge, in fact, it seems as though the wisest course, the general course we should seek as Christians, is to be faithful in whatever God gives us, to be good stewards. You know, the parable of the talents, whether he gives us you know, one talent or five or ten, if he gives us a lot or a little, to be faithful with whatever God has given us, to be fruitful servants of what God entrusts to you, to be a good steward, to build up wealth and whatever means are just towards godly ends, to avoid being in debt, you know, to be, a, to be wealthy can, can be of good service to your family, to the church, the work of God, but you must not put your trust in wealth. Proverbs 38 and 9 says this, Two things I ask of you, deny me them not before I die. Remove falsehood and lying from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In either, in either way, he's saying, hey, you know, just trust in the Lord. Just be good with what you have. Don't be so desirous of money it turns away. But Jesus is saying there are specific things about having wealth that are a great stumbling block to many. What Jesus does reveal, though, is that those who have wealth in this age oftentimes have a harder time entering the kingdom because they are so slow to recognize their need. That, that, that trust in your wealth can lull you to sleep. Like, you know, if I get sick, you know, I, I've got, I can pay for just about any, you know, I know great surgeons, I have, you know, I have great insurance, I'm, I'm fine. Hey, you know, if, 
If I can't work, I've got plenty of money saved up. If I want to go do something else, I can go trips, I can do this. And it can lull you to a sense of false security. And so it seems that that great wealth can have a blinding effect. The rich typically do not experience those daily worries of life. How am I going to pay my bills? If I get injured, what am I going to do? How am I going to eat? What's going to happen to me? But the advantage, there's an advantage actually to not having great wealth in this sense, that oftentimes people who are more poor have less wealth, less security and money, kind of already recognize their need. Like a lot of the people that Jesus encountered, they had experienced daily need like, yeah, I'm in debt. Yeah, I, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I'm struggling to pay my bills. I'm like, these people who are experiencing this, they already know their need. And so they have an advantage in that they're, like, they're more readily willing to say, I need help. More than that, I need someone to come in. I need a savior. So while it is not necessarily a virtue in and of itself to be poor, there is an advantage to it in this case. That those who have little wealth in this age and little hope of attaining it are more willing to love the promises of riches in heaven, riches in the world to come. So, these, so the disciples are flabbergasted. Okay? They're saying, God, if this man can't be saved, then who can? I mean, come on. Jesus says uh, an amazing verse here. He says, With man it is impossible, but with, not with God, for with God all things are possible. Jesus reminds us that there is... There's no person or kind of person that is so far from God that his grace cannot be overcome, that God cannot remove that heart of stone. Now, no human being, no human being can change their own heart. We kind of already mentioned that earlier. Nobody can free themselves from bondage to sin. That one overriding sin, yeah, you can't do that yourself. But praise the Lord, he can and he does. See, the good news is, you know, we learn from Luke's gospel that the, good, the gospel is good news to the poor. It's also good news to the rich if they're willing to hear it because the gospel saves from beginning to end those who will receive it, those whom the Lord works in. And honestly, oftentimes it's in really uh, unexpected people. I've, I've been in ministry for, in, in one form or another for about 20 years now, and, and I've, I've, I've known students who are like model youth group students, you know, they were faithful attenders, they listened well, they were kind, you know, they, uh, they had a Christian family, they went on mission trips, they, had, they, had, they answered all the right questions, they went to Awana, they had all the badges, they helped in VBS, all the, all the stuff, right? All the benefits and blessings preparing them to enter the kingdom, and yet they didn't. They loved some other sin too much instead. I've also seen those kids who were so on the fringe, they were hanging on by a thread. They were, they were barely coming to youth group. They were smoking in the parking lot when they got there, you know, or, or, or doing something else. They had no interest in what they were talking about. They were, some, they were just there to, to meet the girls or something, or their parents made them come. Uh, but there was something that kept them coming. It's like, I, I don't even know why you're coming here, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, they didn't come of a church background. They didn't have a Christian family. They had no other support system. They were sinning openly while in youth group. You know, they would answer questions in discussion with cuss words attached. You're like, you know, this is youth group. That's like part of the unwritten rules you're not supposed to do. Um, And man, God got a hold of their life. And you're like, I did not expect that, but praise God. And they're walking with the Lord and they're faithful. And it it reminds us that it is 
with, you know, who can be saved? Well, it's not, it's not of our own doing, but, you know, we can look at people and say, you know what, this person seems like a lost cause. This person seems like they're so far away. Their heart is so hard. And I love Jesus says, you know what, yeah, with man it is impossible. Quit looking for this person to be able to turn their life around and start praying because with all, God all things are possible. I've given up guessing who God is going to effectually save. Share the gospel with people to the best of my ability. Pray for them and watch God work. He can save people that you would never expect and make them mighty for the kingdom of God. So Peter began to, to talk, and he, he's, he's listening to what Jesus said to this man. He said, sell all you have and, you know, and, and, you know, give it away to the poor and come follow me. And Jesus is, and Peter, having witnessed all that, he's, he's quick to point out, like, hey, Jesus, <clears throat> just a reminder, like, we gave up everything to follow you. Just, just slipping that in there, just so you don't forget right? Eternal life, we gave it up all. I just love Peter. I just <laughs> that he's, he's making sure that Jesus doesn't forget that fact. He's like, yeah, we did that, by the way. And he did. They abandoned a lot of things, you know, right? They, it, it, honestly, we, sometimes we're, we're, call, we're all called to abandon our sin. We're all called to repent. But sometimes the call to follow Christ means even forsaking good things for the sake of Christ. Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John, left the family business very abruptly. So did Levi or Matthew, left a wealthy job as a tax collector. You'll talk to Christians who hit a breaking point in their career, where they were advancing in their career, in their field, and for them to go any further or to maintain that job would require them to start making concessions and start disobeying Christ in certain areas, to to living or speaking or doing underhanded things or affirming things they couldn't affirm, or doing tasks they couldn't do. And they would have to behave in such a way, they would have to disobey Christ. And then they had to ask the question, well, either I have to dishonor Christ, or I have to leave my job and find a new one. If Christ is really Lord over your life, then everything and everyone else starts taking second place, including your spouse, including your kids, including your job. Sometimes, it is a career. Other times, it's, you know, Christ calls us to forsake even good things, right? Sometimes it's people and relationships. I remember when I got out of college and seminary, uh, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from around the St. Louis area. And me and my wife, we were just like, hey, all of our family is there. Me and my wife went to um, high school together. We're high school sweethearts. So, like, all of our family was there. And we're like, okay, we're going to go away to college. Okay, we'll go to seminary. I'll get all the degrees, and then I want to come back, and I want to, like, I mean, I'm a homebody. I'm not a big traveler, um, and I'm like, I want to live near my family. And for years, I was immovable on this. Like, God, you know, please give me a ministry that can take care of my needs and use my gifts and is within 30 minutes my family. And I gave up several ministry opportunities because I was like, nope, no, that, that isn't, nope, not doing that one, not that one. I was unyielding. And it wasn't, I'm not going to tell the whole story now, but there was, there was a time when God was like, Matt, let me make this clear to you. You're not moving back home. That's not my will for you. And finally, God got my attention. And thankfully, that's why I came here to Living Hope. I finally said, okay, God, I'll go where you send me. And he sent me even farther away. This is farther than Virginia where I was living at. And I, and I had to wrestle with that. You know, like, hey, I, I love my parents. I love my sister. I love our family that still lives there and friends. And I see them like maybe once a year. And no doubt, that, that is hard for me. It's hard for my wife. It's hard to see that my kids don't grow up like knowing on like a weekly basis like their grandparents, right? And so I feel this when he says like, hey, some of you have given up like 
lands and brothers and sisters and husbands and mothers and fathers. And, and Jesus is acknowledging that, right? Sometimes it's hard. It's a sacrifice. But Jesus is saying, hey, nobody has lost those things that isn't gaining much more. We gain much more now and in the world to come. Our relationship with Christ may cost us opportunities, halt career advancement, may separate us from family and friends, may cause us to do hard things, but it is no loss in the end. Jesus promises you will gain in this life. Jesus gives you a family, and he has given us a family. You are my family, right? I spent, I've spent Thanksgivings and Christmases at your table when I wasn't home with my family in Missouri. You know what's cool, Christian? You can go to really any place in the world, any country, and you will find a saint. You may not even speak their language, but they would let you stay in their house, and they would welcome you with hospitality because you have a brother and a sister in Christ all over the world. You have a family that spans the whole world. He says that's why it's, it's no loss. You're receiving all of that. You have spiritual mothers and fathers. You have a spiritual home, places where you can stay. You have that now in this life. And then you have even more to come. You have eternal life coming and treasures. It's, it's, this is the thing. And I love how he, how he contrasts the riches of this world and treasures in heaven. He says, yes, this man, he, if he would have just given up his riches, he would have received treasure in heaven. And, and let me just pause for a second here because I think a lot of time we don't understand what Jesus is saying when he says treasures in heaven. If we're not careful, we can think like, yeah, like paper money here or like a certificate of appreciation in heaven. Like, do we think about treasures in heaven that way? Like, like God going, good job, I'm proud of you. Or like treasures in heaven is like, like I said, a certificate or just I'm, or good job, chief. Like, no, Jesus is going to give you a kingdom. Jesus, when he returns, is going to take over the entire world and give it to his saints. All things are yours. There's a passage in Revelation that says, uh, 11.15, talking about this, says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you, saint, will reign with him in glory, and every creature on earth and every angelic being will be submitted to you. This world, renewed, redeemed, will belong to his saints. All things will be yours. And we're going to hang on to little, little treasures here, little paper money, little possessions that are, are rotting and rusting and getting holes in them and, and becoming obsolete and fading away. You have a kingdom. You have a whole world that you will inherit. And many of the poorest saints in this age will outshine the richest saint in the, in the age to come because of their great faith and obedience. And that's why Jesus says, hey, the last will be first and the first will be last. You'll be more wealthy. The, 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 the meagerest saint in the kingdom of heaven will have more wealth than all the kings of this earth now combined. Colossians 3 says, and then, what, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Guys, don't give up the treasures of heaven for treasures on earth. Be willing to part with anything and everything for the sake of Christ, knowing that it is, you have something even greater. Are you going to hold on to the treasures you can hook, hold on to and see and look at, or the ones that you can hold on to by faith, knowing that they will come?
I'm going to call the, the worship team up here as we read this last section. Jesus is contrasting this great glory to come with a sober reminder that there is a painful path to get there. So in the midst of all of this, this promise, he says, that they were, as they were on the road going to Jerusalem, Jesus a last time, a third time in this gospel, reminds them, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus asks us to do something hard, no doubt about it. Giving up this, this great controlling sin to enter the kingdom is hard. As a Christian, daily being willing to sacrifice even good things is hard. But we're not doing anything that Jesus hasn't done himself that was even more difficult. He endured the cross. The King of glory endured shame. The Lord of creation endured being spat upon and mocked and hung naked on a cross so he could receive glory in you with him. So follow after Christ. Count this life as less than the life to come. Live Godward. Think often of your heavenly reward, like daily. Think about the reward you have in heaven and rejoice in it. Look to Christ as your example in suffering. Let nothing, even a good thing, come between you and God. Would you pray with me? Lord, God, we, we thank you that you are a faithful Savior. God, we thank you that you call us from death to life. The Lord, you're the giver of every good gift and every good thing we even have here, even whatever wealth we might have here, Lord, is just a foretaste of the goodness, of the glory, of the kingdom that you will be delivering to us. God, help us to look with eager anticipation of the world to come, of your promises, and really, Lord, of the glory of your presence. Help us to desire you, not just the stuff you give, but to desire to be with you. Lord, more than we desire to be here and have stuff here, let us hold the things, even the good things that you've given us here loosely so we can hold firmly with the other hand to Christ in faith. Lord, for those who have not done this, who are still wrestling with some great sin, some great thing that's keeping them from you, would you make them aware of it? Would you open their eyes to see what it is and then call them from death to life? Grant them the grace to be able to repent and come to Jesus and have life now in the world to come.